Note to parents, you will need to review this message before deciding if it is suitable for your older children. Sadly, most of our children are barraged with the kinds of evil speech which we seek to expose and rebuke in this study. Still, parental discretion is advised. The Deplorable Word There's a conversation in C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew between two children, Digri and Polly, and the evil queen whom they have inadvertently freed from a sleeping spell. She explains why they have found her in her sleeping state, that she had decided to destroy her world and everything in it by speaking what she called the deplorable word, a word so evil, so destructive, that it annihilates everything except the one who speaks it. When the children protest such an evil action, the queen replies that she had forgotten that they were only commoners, with no understanding of the reasons of state. Quote, you must learn that what would be wrong for you or for any of the common people is not wrong in a great queen such as I. The weight of the world is on our shoulders. We must be freed from all rules. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. There is something in common with all who think, quote, our lips are our own. We must answer to no one. Psalm 12, verse 4. God has given us the freedom to use the power of speech, and that is why we will give account to him for how we used it. Whether we're a commoner, as the queen referred to us, or a great head of state misusing the power of language to seduce, deceive, or destroy, the thing held in common by both the cussing commoner or the strutting statist is the arrogance, the arrogance of forgetting where our ability to speak came from and what our responsibilities are with that power. When the evil queen shows the total indifference to those she destroyed with her use of the deplorable word, she brings to mind many of our current politicians who also, with her, believe they are above the law and that if only the poor, stupid, riffraff commoners were as intelligent as they are, then we would understand the need for rulers to make their own rules and answer to no one, because, of course, theirs is a high and lonely destiny. A perfect example, and there are so many to choose from, is the very current confrontation yesterday, as of this recording, that took place between Congressional Oversight Committee members seeking to obtain needed records from the IRS, which have mysteriously vanished from existence. The arrogance and pomposity of the IRS representative is a perfect picture of the evil queen, who, in her words, must be freed from all rules. The vitally important point we need to grasp here is that when such arrogant evil taunts justice and righteousness, and when we feel impotent against it, then is when we become most tempted to speak our own version of the deplorable word. In me, it would go something like, well, just keep it up, you pompous, arrogant, blankety-blank-blank-blank. I'll love to be watching when your tiny little throne 
is finally cast down, or something like that. The gist of that sentence is certainly not wrong. Scripture supports the celebration of the downfall of the wicked, and again, there are so many scriptures to choose from. One of my favorite is Psalm 94. Read the entire psalm. It's so perfectly fitting for our present world situation. So it's not the rebuke of evil that's the problem. It's the blankety-blank-blanks that are. I've stated this before, but it needs to be restated till we, or maybe I, get it solidly in the heart. The use of evil language in an attempt to rebuke evil is itself an evil that contributes to the evil we're seeking to rebuke. Jesus said we should limit our response to either yes or no because whatever is more than that is of the evil one, Matthew 5.37. Why is that true? Because there is power in words for good or for evil. And we who follow the living word, the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us, must align our mouth with him if his power is to flow through us to destroy evil and to establish good. I think it goes without saying that I'm not trying to be prudish here. For instance, I'm not necessarily put off by certain curse words in a movie if they are part of the dramatic storyline and therefore express the reality of what the story needs to communicate. Now, some may disagree with me on that, and I respect your position if you say, no, there's never any reason under any circumstances for cursing. The story can still get told without it. It would take more time than we have here to examine both sides of that question. Let me just say that if I had to pick between no cursing at all and what we are being flooded with by the current entertainment cesspool, I would certainly opt for no cursing at all. And it is a fact that what we listen to in even one film or TV show can easily become a part of our inner conversation and could slip into our outer interaction if not careful. So I get the point of those who vie for none at all. But until the whole world gets the same wisdom, I'm not overtly troubled when in a storyline or conversation a person expresses their pain or anger with what I consider cursing. It's not because we're prudish children that we address this problem of unclean or threatening speech. It's because we believe our words have supernatural power that can manifest either good or evil. And since we are followers of Jesus, who, as I've said already, is the living word, it's simply much wiser to obey him and follow his example, who, when he was cursed, did not curse back, 1 Peter 2.23. Now, I had to get free of the false image of an effeminate rouge-cheeked Jesus with a Lady Clairol hairdo hanging on the Sunday school room wall telling me that I needed to be a nice boy. I had to come in contact with the real Jesus and hear him explain to me that he is not rebuking cursing because he wants me to be a, a nice boy who pleases the ladies at church. And I, I don't say that with any disrespect to godly women who I thank God for. It's our fault but many men often tend to cuss in order to distance ourselves from the terror of feeling we're being feminized. 
And the church tends to greatly increase this fear of being feminized because, sadly, many churches are overly influenced by feminine qualities at the expense of masculine qualities. That that may be men's fault for not stepping up is another valid point we can't pursue here. But I believe the real Jesus wants me not to misuse the God-given power of articulate speech in order that my mouth can rebuke evil and bless life and instruct the young and comfort the hurting and celebrate truth and worship the Father. And a polluted mouth cannot do any of that very well. Now once I saw that truth, a lifelong habit of blankety-blanks began to be purged from my mouth and heart. Like most old sayings, the old saying is still true, that it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. But when darkness is pouring in all around us in the form of lies and seductions and devilish propaganda, so that all we love and cherish is treated with disdain, and all we know to be destructive is being vaunted and celebrated, the sense of inner frustration this creates in us can cause us to simply blow a gasket we then may take a shortcut rather than make the more difficult moral effort to think through our argument and find the most effective way to communicate it in a way that will bring positive change. We just have an impotent moment of slight rage. We then lose the inner pressure that was meant to grow in us into the forging of a message that can carry power. We dissipate it. We we spray it on the ground. We abort it. The longer, more difficult road of candle lighting is too demanding, so we maybe just let some dams and hells fly. I'm speaking here from my own standpoint with reference to my reaction to current events and crooked politicians and the like. But the same principle could be relevant to long red lights or computers that don't do what I want. I know I keep giving myself away in this message. But is that what we really want to fly through the atmosphere? Is that what we want to send into motion? Isn't it hell we're fighting against? Isn't it damnation we're seeking to deliver folks from? Where would we be if God had looked out from his throne upon the horror of the pre-Adamic abyss and rather than speaking light be, and bringing order, he just kind of reacted to the darkness and chaos by saying, damn, it's dark. What the hell is going on around here? Yes, I'm being facetious, but with a point. God only speaks truth, light, life, love, righteousness, wholeness, order, We are made in his image and likeness, and no part of us is more manifestly evident of that fact than in our ability to speak. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, Adam, became a living soul. He breathed into his nostrils. That's a fascinating phrase. He, vayepah, it's a plosive in Hebrew. It means just what it sounds like. The, the impartation of breath and spirit 
And where does he do it? Uh, He breathes into him the breath of life, nishmat kaya, and man becomes a, a thing alive. He breathes it right into his face. The word nostrils there implies face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. God has spoken the same word about the creation of fish and cattle. They're called nefesh. They're called living things. But God comes down and literally face-to-face breathes and demand the breath of life. The Hebrew here denotes not just breathing air into his lungs, but by the impartation of that spirit into man's body, bringing him into existence as a soul. See, in Hebrew, the body plus spirit equals soul. And soul is the life of the whole being, body, spirit, soul. It's too much to get into now, but God's image and likeness is manifested in this ability, this passion that is awakened in man, this inner movement toward outer objects that evokes response. God's image and likeness, the ability to articulate, to speak, to name, to commune, to desire, to have passion, to long for, uh, to, to, to verbalize. It, all of that's there. I mean, it would just take too much to try to get this across uh, in the limited time we've got. But we, I, I wish we could just spend the rest of our time right here. When we diminish the gift of articulate speech, when we make it in any way less than what it was intended for, we demean ourselves back down to the animal level, the mere instinct, the mere appetite level. So there's a very important reason why God speaks of the cattle and the fish as also having nefesh, same as he speaks of Adam as being a living soul, nefesh hayah. But the difference is that Adam's physical life has been overshadowed and lifted up into a higher dimension by the vayepach, the breath of life from the very core of God's being into the core of man's being. And that, among other things, is uh, what produced the capacity for speech. This is why when men become more devil than human, such as in concentration camps, they purposefully squash speech and at the same time force humans into animal-like behaviors, such as public body waste elimination. Animals don't worry about such things. But when humans are forced into that level of behavior and are unable to verbalize in protest, they begin to lose their sense of identity, then their sense of personhood, then their very humanity becomes endangered. But there's a devilish way to diminish the human soul even apart from the harshness of a concentration camp. It can be done if a society simply loses the reverence for the gift of articulate speech and begins to misuse it by curses. If Satan cannot put you in a real concentration camp, he seeks to turn the very daily culture you have to live in into an atmosphere which generates the same level of dehumanizing evil. He loves to clothe himself with cursing like a garment. Psalm 109 says in verse 19 and 20, 
So let it come into his bowels like water, and into his bones let it seep in like oil. Let it be like a girdle that surrounds him continually. Let this be the reward of evil, that he becomes the evil he has spoken. The words of cursing enter into the soul of the speaker. They seep into his bones. They warp into his guts and become like a shroud girding about him so he cannot get free from it till it kills him. But thank God Jesus said in John 6.63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And in John 15.3, he said, now you are clean, through the word that I have spoken to you. So if we are seriously seeking to follow him, it will directly affect our choice of words. Proverbs 18, verse 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and they will eat the fruit of it, it says. Jesus said again in Matthew twelve thirty six. You will give account on the day of judgment for every idle, impotent, meaningless word you speak. Why? Because we've already stated it. We are God's co-regents in the created order. Jesus stresses this even more dramatically in Matthew 5.22 when he says, "If, if you say this or that to your brother, you're in danger of coming into trouble with the earthly courts, but if you say to your brother, you useless fool, you're in danger of hellfire. That means there's there's levels of misuse of the tongue, of course. And I mean, you hit your hammer and you say something bad, uh, that's not on the same level as calling your brother a useless thing that shouldn't have come into existence and you curse him. At that point, you you become part of what Jesus has already previously spoken to us about. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no, for anything beyond that is from the evil one. You speak a curse to your brother, your sister. You're coming under the power of hell. There is, of course, a lot that needs to be said regarding these two statements that I just quoted from Jesus. But our present purpose Let us get this, that when we allow our words to become vile, cursing, abusive, destructive, we are in that moment, in that spirit, cooperating with hell. And hell is what we were supposed to be fighting. We can't afford to ignore this. I'll say it again. We do double damage when we speak unclean words. We affirm the very evil we may be angry at. And we're failing to use our mouth for the divine purpose of blessing and rebuking evil and blessing life at the same time. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who stood against the darkest propaganda machine in history, said, quote, One word of truth outweighs the whole world. Ranting and cursing does nothing to hurt the enemy and everything to affirm him. Truth spoken softly can sound like cannon fire in the ears of liars. Curses shouted at cursors just sounds like more of their regular atmosphere. Also, we tend to give vent to such language, as I've already mentioned, out of frustration. But God is not doing enough fast enough to deal with the wrong and the evil, and we are in unbelief when we're in that attitude. 
and in danger of thinking that we're wiser and better than God. We're also failing to think through our argument, hone our message, deliver the truth in a way that cannot be argued against or rebuked. Jesus said he would give us a tongue and a message that our enemies would not be able able to gainsay or resist. Do we believe he will or do we not? We are quite often just being lazy, intellectually and spiritually lazy. You understand I'm preaching this whole thing to myself. You just happen to get to hear it whether you need to or not. (laughs) I hope you don't need to, but at the same time, I hope you gain some wisdom from it and something that might be helpful. Let's talk a little bit more about demonic speech, diabolical dialogue. We use words every day which we probably don't fully understand the meaning of, don't we? Of course we do. We may speak of someone or something being diabolical and not realize we are saying that they're in line with the devilish or the demonic. What does diabolic have to do with devils? Well, the word in Greek literally means to throw or cast through. Diabolic. Dia. To, to, to cast through or cast alongside or, or throw through something. It eventually ends up referring to that which tears, divides, that which separates, which is the work of the devil, to separate, to destroy, to divide, to rip open. It would be an entire study on its own to examine just a few of the scriptures which refer to the devil operating via words. He's the father of lies. He's the seducer, the slanderer, the flatterer, the the propaganda machine. And we will address these as soon as we can get to them. Each of these areas of poison speech are diabolical works of darkness that the children of light must war against both within ourselves and within the church before we can ever effectively confront it in the culture. But for now, I think we got it that the words of Satan are always to divide in order to deconstruct, in order to destroy. We've got that much down. We don't need a full Greek lesson. The deplorable words, the dividing words, deconstructing words, and destructive words. Proverbs 11.9 says, With their words, the godless destroy. Words mean things. Words are not a subject of study as much as they are the tool that makes all subjects of study able to be performed. So if we corrupt a word, we are corrupting the existence of all that relates to that word. If uh, you know, we speak in order to identify something that has real existence, and we speak in order to communicate to another. So therefore, can a curse be a real thing? And is it communication? The same principle applies to lies, flattery, sophistry, so forth. But for now, we'll focus on the area of curses, vulgarity, and evil speech. Destructive language means releasing a destructive force against a person or persons. This is akin to murder, witchcraft, and blasphemy. Joseph Pieper says in his essay on the abuse of language, 
The moment we cease speaking truly and faithfully to another, we enter a realm of untruth that has spiritual ramifications for providing a platform for evil. Matthew 5.37 again, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever is more than that comes from the evil one. We then no longer are relating to the other person as a person and are therefore diminishing one made in the image of God using the power of speech which sets us apart as also in his image and are desecrating him on three levels. We're desecrating the Lord ourselves, and our audience. Triple sin. Truth lives in dialogue. So cursing is the intrusion of anti-life and anti-truth and anti-dialogue and then becomes therefore diabolic. Personalizing language, using it to speak at instead of to another is diabolic. This opens the door to the very loss of language itself. Once language is lost, the intrusion of propaganda becomes almost a given immediately. We are very close to the loss of language now in this culture. Once language is lost, the ability to communicate ideas clearly and to reason and to come into some mutual sense of unity is lost The diabolical, then, is all that remains. A culture without the good of reason, communicated by language everyone understands, is a perfect setup for seduction by propaganda. And propaganda leads to tyranny. How? Well, you remember a few minutes ago we mentioned that totalitarian governments seek to dehumanize people by destroying their sense of personhood and that if an entire culture can be desensitized to the danger of abusive language, then civility dies. Lies become easily established. Human respect vanishes. Crime increases. Violence increases. Salacious sexual activity increases. Blasphemy becomes normal. There is no hierarchy of uh, value left. We are fully there now. So as delicately as we can, we need to examine the corpse of our culture and try to determine the cause of death. There are three areas of cursing that I want to focus on uh, as much as it pains me to do it. That is, number one, cursing seems to surround three basic areas. Number one, body functions and related body parts. References to human waste, the body organs through which waste is disposed of. The second category is sex and related body parts. All manner of street language sexuality, and all manner of street language references to the body parts related to sex. And then the third category of vulgar language or cursing is blasphemy, using the name of the Lord as a curse. And I would also include in this the throwing around of damn and hell. That too is blasphemy. For, I'll just say that to save us some time, 
when we speak of damnation and hell, we're speaking of the same exact category. We're speaking of things we do not understand and do not have authority to address, much less use as a weapon. And we are therefore diminishing the authority of God and the mystery and majesty of God when we use language like that with no sense of accountability to him being the only one who knows what hell is and what damnation is. Now, in Numbers chapter 25, there is the agonizing story of Israel's worshiping at Baal Peor. The word Peor is the Hebrew word for a crack or a crevice. Baal Peor was a place so horrible that even uh, pagan kings would uh, punish their people for going there. Uh, it was a place of uh, human sacrifice and orgy to Baal and Moloch, carried on by every kind of horrible activity, not just sexual activity of every stripe and every perversion, but it included uh, aspects of demonic uh, desecration of the human body that's too terrible to go into any detail here. Um, I think as we go on in, in the remainder of this time together, you'll get the point without me putting anything in your imagination that I don't want to put there. But the worship of this particular Baal demon was one of mixing every evil imaginable into one horrible orgy of lustful, blasphemous, dehumanizing, defecating, demon-worshipping cesspool of filth. You then see this exact form of demonic worship being manifested every time there's a tirade of vulgarity or cursing language in our present culture. The mixing of cursing vulgarity, sex talk, and the invoking of the Lord's name in the midst of all of those curses is a verbal example on the linguistic level of what caused the wrath of God to destroy 23,000 uh, Israelis in one day. Now, there's a, there's a clear demonic relish in this kind of misuse of language. There's a demonic force behind it. You may not necessarily be demonized when you speak it, but I think people who, I don't mean to use the personal pronoun there, those who speak these these things uh, may not be doing so under the power of an evil spirit, but they certainly are opening themselves up to becoming demonized by the use of that language. Proverbs chapter I think it's chapter 28 says a man who has no control over his own spirit uh, is like a city that's broken down and has no walls. The walls are obviously meant to keep the enemy out. So if your walls are collapsing with language on that level, you're inviting demons to come in. I remember uh, years ago reading the, the biography of Marilyn Manson something I don't recommend anybody do. For any of you who don't know who in the world I'm talking about, Marilyn Manson is the pseudonym of a young man named Brian Warner. Brian Warner is a, a man I pray for. 
Brian Warner is a man who was badly hurt by mean church kids and who in his bitterness embraced occultism and took upon himself the the names of Marilyn Monroe and Charles Manson. So he dubbed himself Marilyn Manson and became a, a human manifestation of the demons that operated in that whole world. And he, he's describing in his biography, which again, I'm not ever recommending anybody read, because the book is written partly by Brian Warner and partly by the demon that he invited in. So the verbiage goes something like this. He's describing almost overdosing on drugs and how he nearly died from it. And then he makes the statement that uh, he remembers vaguely a, a, a stack of curdled cheese dressed like a penguin walking over to him and uh, doing things to help him keep living. In the very same paragraph, Brian Warner, the human voice of the writing, says, the, the nuns who took care of me were very kind. I'm very grateful for their care. You see that? The demon calls the nuns, who Brian Warner was grateful for, for their care, a stack of curdled cheese dressed like a penguin. Well, it gets a lot worse than that, and in many case studies that I've dealt with and been personally involved in, as well as studied from other researchers, there are numerous accounts of demonized people whose language was so Baal Peor related. This this relish of celebrating the 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 body, the human body as being nothing but a stack of curdled cheese, or use imagery uh, linguistic images far more vulgar and horrible than that, which I don't want to do. It it gives you the understanding of how the demonic absolutely hates our humanity, hates everything about our humanness. Lewis refers to this in Screwtape Letters when when Wormwood's patient has been safely brought into the presence of the Lord at his death. And Screwtape says to Wormwood, he got by so easily, didn't he? This, This thing begotten in a bed, is now looking on him whose presence is blinding, painful fire to us. That's a very clear, accurate picture of the mindset of the satanic, the demonic, the devilish, in reference to man. This is why horror movies satanic rock, and I would include things like CSI that so many people are just glued to, you know, crime scene investigation TV shows, which are proliferating like rabbits on television, which always, always centers around the grotesque display of a cadaver, uh, which was a murder victim at some point in the story. And, uh, Dehumanizing victims in order to be able to kill them is another example in the horrible movie Silence of the Lambs, which is about a a serial uh, killer who captures his victims and 
says to them, it must rub oil upon its skin. It must rub oil upon its skin. In other words, he must dehumanize the victim by calling the victim an it. We did the same thing in our war theaters. We had to reduce Vietnamese to gooks or Germans to krauts. It's just a fact of the fallenness of war and cruelty. But I want to drive this home to us so we become a lot more sensitive to the misuse of language and the dehumanizing that's going on in our culture through the mouths of those created in God's images or those created in God's image and replaced with images that are less than. Fetishes, men speak of the legs or the breasts of a woman, dividing up that person into body parts or reducing them down to their body functions or worse, the result of their body functions. Such language is bale pure. Adolescent childish focus on body parts, function of the body, sex and bodily waste is akin to blasphemy because it diminishes the image of God down to the animal appetites and lower. Jude verse 10 says, These people curse at what they cannot understand And by doing whatever they feel like doing, living by animal instinct only, they participate in their own destruction. Romans 1 verses 18 through 32 says they refused to honor God, but worshiped instead the creature in the place of the creator and therefore became given over to animal-like passions. This is not to dishonor animals who are innocent. This is to say that we have willfully chosen to step down from our rightful place into the animal world where animal passion is excusable for animals. It's desecrating and destructive and damning for us. Philosopher Eric Hoffer said in 1973 in a writing called Reflections on the Human Condition, quote, If a society is to preserve its stability to a degree of continuity, it must know how to keep its adolescents from imposing their tasteless attitudes and values and fantasies onto the entire culture. Enough said about that. With reference to it, though, the basic premise of revolutionary ideology as seen in the 1960s Berkeley free speech movement was not so much free speech as filthy speech. Nothing more than adolescents smearing dirty words across their t-shirts, their foreheads, and the media, and then the whole culture. They saw that as a necessary thing in order to overthrow the culture. It evidently worked to some degree. I sometimes run across the use of the F word, even in Christian publications. I have a letter in my files from one such company who responded to me after I confronted them, and they explained to me in condescending tones, because I'm adult, that they needed to be relevant and keep up with the times. In other words, let the world inform us not us inform the world. 
I didn't bother with a second letter. The good of reason was not present enough in their response to me to invite further attempts at discussion. This in itself is an example of what I mean. Vulgarity moves in. Reason moves out. Adolescence moves in. Adulthood moves out. And we are left divided by a common language. And division is the work of Diabolos. So what's the big deal about the F word? Well, here's a word about words. Many words change over time. We all know that. Some change is much to the point of being totally the opposite of what they originally meant. The King James Version uses the word let. He who lets will let until he is taken out of the way, it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word let used to mean to hold back, to disallow, to block the progress of. How did the word let end up meaning in our present vernacular the very opposite, to allow, let him in, let him go to the game, let him through the gate, let. Well, it's too long a story as to how it came to mean the opposite of what it originally meant, but in fact, any study of how words change over time is a long story, too long for us here. We might get a clue by observing just in our own lifetime how a bad car means now a good car. But it gives me a headache, so we won't go there. Rather than get into the details of how words change and worse, rather than trying to make some excuse for vulgarity by blaming it on how words change from culture to culture, let's go back to our original understanding. In the beginning was the word. Satan, in opposition to that word, is a liar and the father of lies. We're warned of the power of words to carry spiritual force in them for either good or evil, so it shouldn't matter to us if we can trace a word back to a time when it was not so bad. We know what words mean now, and we know the spiritual power of evil they're carrying now. That should be enough for our present purpose. Do we want our speech to be that which honors God and blesses people and brings life and rebukes darkness, or do we want to play the sophist game of manipulating words for our own purposes? If we choose the latter, then we might get elected and go to Washington, where sophistry and perversity of speech in all forms is now the norm. But I don't think we'll choose that. Man and woman in the image of God and the F word. The use of the F word reduces spiritual union to the lowest possible level in order not to be sexy, but to bring the image of God in man and woman down to where Baal Baal Peor would have it. The demonic plan is not to enhance life with more sex, but to remove life out of sex altogether, reducing it to the level of the other curse words that usually accompany it, words referring to dismembered body parts, bodily fluids, and waste products, and ultimately to offer it up as a slap in the Creator's face. 
That is what is behind the use of the word, no matter how ignorantly the speaker uses it. Words carry meaning. Doesn't matter how far you go back into the 15th or 16th century to uncover the Germanic roots or the Dutch roots or whatever other kind of roots you may find as uh, being behind what has come to us now as the F word. Culture often adjusts the use of a word until, as we've already said, they may, it may even take opposite meanings, but some words carry such a deplorable level of darkness that such etymological alterations cannot occur. The F word has a long history of dark baggage which no amount of sophistication can counter. And beside that, the people who use the word are not trying to find a way to make it more acceptable. They want it to be the verbal equality of a blow in the face with a fist. And so the spirit behind the word has actually become more dark, more perverse. Now the shock is meant to shock. The damage is meant to be damaging. The vulgarity is meant to demean. The salaciousness is meant to entice. Some may say that it has become so common now that none of those once factual descriptions still apply. And that's still the point. If a word has lost its punch, why use it? But even more to the point, if a, if a deplorable word has lost its ability to be deplorable, then you must find something even more deplorable. So that underscores the fact that the use of this kind of language is a destructive, dismembering, diminishing, destroying practice, disintegrating. And those who use this kind of language, I don't believe for one moment, are innocent of it or don't really grasp what it really is doing to people or to themselves. I don't think we're that out of touch. I think we know what we're doing when we say words that carry that spirit. And claiming ignorance or innocence just makes us more guilty. Using suggestive language, telling off-color jokes or speaking with double entendre, for instance, for some is a means of both auto-erotic stimulation and seduction of others. Paul warned us about this in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. He says in verse 14 to no longer be like children tossed by the wind of flippant culture, which is energized by what he refers to as elemental spirits, the stoikikos he mentions in Galatians 4, 3 also. His instruction as to how to counter these elemental forces that operate in the carnality of culture is by speaking the truth in love in order that we may grow up. See the opposite of childishness? The adolescent vulgarity of speech is countered by speaking the truth in love and growing up in Christ. Then he goes on to say in verse 17 through 19, we are to no longer live like the pagans do in the vanity of their minds having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the willful ignorance. 
that is in them because of the willful blindness of their hearts, who, because they are beyond the normal heart feelings which God intended a loving person to experience and live in, have instead given themselves over to lasciviousness in order to work all kinds of uncleanness with greediness. See the opposition? Instead of loving feelings and meaningful sentiments, they are beyond the ability to feel those things, and therefore they they pursue all kinds of lasciviousness to try to feel alive because they don't ever feel alive. They have to be burning with lust or burning with rage or burning with anger or burning with some kind of passion uh, because they have so devoid, uh, such a de- uh, void on the inside. Uh, so Paul says, no, put on, put put off these things. He says, willfully put off these things. Put on the new man, which is created after God's own nature of holiness. And then put away lying, anger, stealing. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but rather that which is good for the use of building up, so it will minister grace to those who hear you, so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. See the connection between spirit and word again? The Holy Spirit who has sealed you toward the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. What's what's clamor? It's just hell-raising. It's just yelling and screaming and, and being overwrought, whether it's for unrighteous reasons or so-called righteous reasons. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That means un, unloving, non-life-giving motivations, malice. Be kind tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Be in that imitators of God as beloved children of his. But sexual sin of any and every kind, let it not be even named once among you, nor filthiness or foolish talk or coarse jesting which are not life-giving, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather rebuke them. That entire series of of verses there, from chapter 14, uh, verse 14 of chapter 4, all the way through the entirety of chapter 5, needs to be read as one piece. Forget chapter 5, it messes up the flow of the whole thought. You see, if you take the time to just read straight through chapter 4 and 5 without hindering uh, the flow by the illogical chapter number placement, there's a direct line of thought that ties together silly speech, which leads to unclean suggestive speech, which leads to vulgar perverse speech, and then to behaviors that end up being sexually immoral. He also ties in anger, malice, rage, cursing, all that is in opposition to real love. 
This then naturally leads to his addressing the two final topics of chapter 5, which is worship, the highest use of the mouth, and then the directly related topic of godly marriage and a righteous home life. So ungodly language proliferated becomes the force which energizes the increase of lust, the increase of anger, the increase of division, the increase of corruption and perversion, and the decrease of civility, the decrease of lasting healthy relationships, and the decrease of reverence for the holy. If words are spirit, and they are, and they set the tone for the level of reality that a culture lives in, we are now drowning in spiritual sewage. The end result will be the loss of freedom and the rise of totalitarianism. How? Well, the loss of language means the loss of concepts that cannot be accurately communicated. Remember the Tower of Babel? The confusion of language meant the dispersion of the people. They could not remain united without a united vocabulary with mutual understanding and agreed-upon understandings and meanings. Language is meant to be a conduit of truth. Once language can no longer communicate truth as accepted unifying ideas that bind a culture together, the culture begins to unravel. This is what multiculturalism is really about. It's not multiculturalism. It's multi-false religion and false philosophies meant to so confuse and dissipate that America and Great Britain and all the countries of the West lose their identity and become a sewage pile for all of the demonic BLP or activity of the rest of the world. That doesn't mean there's not good things in culture in other parts of the world, but it certainly is not anywhere near on the par of Western civilization because it was rooted in the fear of God, which produced the highest, uh, the highest level of life and the highest valuing of life and preciousness of life in the history of the world. So you want multiculturalism, bring all your demonism with it, all your occultism with it, all your sexual confusion with it, all of your false god worship with it. This, of course, means the loss of reality. Loss of language leads to loss of conduit of truth. Loss of the conduit of truth means the loss of reality. False ideas, even foolish, even dangerous ideas, begin to have as much authority as that which is real and true and good. People speak of my truth instead of the truth. This, of course, leads to a loss of cohesion. With the disintegration of a common language and its binding force of shared reality, culture finally unravels, which is then Finally, the loss of freedom. With no binding truth, everyone does what's right in his own eyes, and the only way order can then be maintained is by authoritarian central control of a dictator. Is there any way out of this? Hosea 14 verse 2 says, Return to the Lord and bring with you words. Say to him, Forgive us our sins. Receive us by your grace, 
that we may offer you the fruit of our lips. The way back is to restore the fear of the Lord, restore the sanctity and value of language, beginning with us, we willfully begin to clean up our speech. This, of course, includes more than vulgar language. We're going to talk about other things in future time together, backbiting, uh, uh, cursing in the form of spreading gossip, all kinds of ways we misuse our, our mouth that it can be even more damaging than cussing. But for our present time, return to God. Resist the misuse of evil speech. Replace cursing and reactionary anger with speaking truth, which gives us the energy then to be a fire for truth instead of a a misused spewing of wasted fire in anger. This restores reality. We will then begin to live by the fruit of our lips, which restores cohesion. We begin to be a people of a common speech again, the common language, which restores spiritual freedom. We have to become the counterculture now. We have to become those who are the counterculture. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power, and and what do we see but the flame of the Holy Spirit appearing on each person's head And then they spoke in other tongues. At the Tower of Babel, the dividing of tongues divided the nations. On Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit through the division of tongues united the nations in the gospel. Father, we pray that you will purge our mouth. Let the coal off the altar that Isaiah saw come and touch our lips also. Give us, Lord, not only a purging of wrong speech, but an inflaming of right speech and right living. For our sake and the sake of the world you've called us to. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.